Augustine said, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. The connection between these final two passages in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel is a close one, and evidently St. Augustine understood that. The passage previous to the one for today that Katie just read for us speaks of turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, and being willing to be taken advantage of for the sake of the good of others, even when they don't deserve it. And the passage before us today has a similar and connected message. Corey Ten Boom was brought up in Holland around the turn of the 20th century, and her family, perhaps you're aware of who she is, was instrumental in the rescuing and harboring of many Jewish people who were fleeing the Nazis in World War II. Sadly, Corey Ten Boom and her family were caught. And she, along with her sister named Betsy, spent time in the Ravensbrück concentration camp set up for women just north of Berlin, Germany. After the war, Corrie ten Boom became a public speaker. She was a believer, proclaiming God's message of love and forgiveness for sin. And on one such occasion, after finishing her speech to a group of people, She saw a man coming toward her who looked familiar. Let me read to you now from Corey Ten Boom's own words. It came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, All our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed as hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. 
For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did at that moment. Powerful story. And to display meekness and grace and generosity to an evil enemy is one thing, but to extend love to them may be another. And these are the messages of the final two passages in Matthew 5, where Jesus declares the necessity of a radical, startling, and as it was for Corey ten Boom, painful, difficult kind of righteousness in his kingdom. Three statements that Jesus makes in this final passage of chapter 5. The first statement is one where he indicts the corrupt teaching of his time. You see this in verse 43. Once again, this repeated pattern that we've seen multiple times. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the sixth and final, you have heard it said, statement. And in this one, Jesus points out what is perhaps the most twisted, the most corrupted version of the law that we've seen in these six statements. He's calling out that they have been taught love for your neighbor and hatred for your enemy. Now, the love your neighbor part certainly is true. It's location in the law we've looked at already. We won't turn there now, but Leviticus 19.18 clearly says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the second half of that statement is what Jesus is indicting, and it is an addition to the law made by the Jews. And if you look really carefully, Throughout the whole Old Testament, you'll find it nowhere. There's no root in anything in the Old Testament at all that commands the people of God to hate their enemies. And so what probably had happened was that the self-righteous Jews, in their desire to make the law easier to obey for the sake of maintaining their own self-righteousness, their own social standing, their own religious power, pulled yet another Technically, technically the law says neighbor, and technically our neighbors are our fellow Jews in our community, of our race, part of our religion, but outsiders, enemies, strangers, well, technically this doesn't apply to them. Let me point you to a few Old Testament passages that will show you how wrong they were. In the very same chapter of Leviticus, where we find the command to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.10, we see this. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And towards the end of the chapter, Leviticus 19.34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him, that is the stranger, as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If you were to turn back to Exodus, where the Ten Commandments were originally given, you will find just a few chapters later in Exodus, from, from a few chapters later than the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. 
If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. And even in the Proverbs, the Proverbs of their great King Solomon, a son of David that they revered, said this in Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So was the whole of Scripture consistent with their teaching that love for neighbor was required, but hate for enemies was acceptable? No, not even close. But you see, in this section of Jesus' great sermon, you see over and over again that the Jews didn't really care about true righteousness. They cared about portraying a righteousness of their own concoction, for their own social and religious standing, and for the sake of making their lives easier. And so perhaps they would have said, I really hate those Romans who have occupied our land, or I really hate those Samaritan dogs to the north, or I really hate these foreigners who are coming in and out of our region. But hey, since he or she isn't an Israelite, I don't have to love them, so technically I'm good. You see how self-righteous, prideful, selfish sin can twist the beautiful and glorious law of God in such a way that the heart of it is totally missed? You see, the heart of God's commands to love others, was clearly not about favoritism toward insiders. It was about love shown to everyone. So what was it that led to Jesus' indictment of the Jewish teaching in verse 43 here? It was their belief and their instruction that hatred toward their enemies was acceptable. And that belief and that teaching came from a heart attitude of technical rule following over genuine righteousness. You see, evidently to them, righteousness to them was a mere social and ritual activity, not a relationship with the divine creator of the universe who called them into a relationship with him. You know, if they had really known their Bibles, which is to us the Old Testament, they'd really known it in full as well as they claimed to, and didn't just use the passages that best suited their own desires Maybe they wouldn't have had this problem. Or maybe they knew their Bibles full well and still rebelliously twisted it to their own good. And so Jesus is indicting this corrupt teaching, but he also is gracious to provide instruction on the correct teaching. We see this in verses 44 through 47. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Instead of hatred for your enemies and for those who persecute you, Jesus says, give them love and pray for them. Love your enemies. Love them. 
The word for love here is beautiful. In its original Greek form, it communicates both actions and attitudes. So it is not just feelings devoid of conscious decisions to act it out. And it's also not just rituals that are empty of sincere feelings of affection. It's both. It's attitudes and actions that display that love. And so Jesus' call to love enemies is not a call to simply do nice things for people that you otherwise might be tempted to hate or oppose. It is a call to an actual change of heart orientation towards those people. But it's also not just a heart of affection that doesn't do anything about it. You see, the Jews and we might be tempted to say, okay, that's fine. I guess I can go help them move, but man, I wish I could just smack him. Or to say, okay, I will forsake my resentment and hatred for them in my heart, but don't ask me to give them any hand with anything that they're dealing with. That's just too far. I'll just keep my distance. It's probably better for both of us that way. No, I'm afraid that is not at all consistent with what Jesus calls for here. He calls for true love, the kind of love that you want people to show you. The kind of love, you could think of it this way, that your family needs from you and that you need from them. The kind of love that as the church we need from each other and give to each other. It's this love that Jesus calls for towards enemies. Isn't this a radical command yet again? You know, I don't know how well I can identify with the Jews on this. I do vividly remember kids in middle school who would bully or tease me, whom I wanted to hate in return. And some of that, certainly as I got older, junior, senior, high, maybe a little in college, but not much. And I know that certain people and nations around the world do not particularly care for America and that it might be accurate to regard them as my enemy. And yes, even as an adult, I have experienced attacks on my character and have been slandered and opposed. But the enemies that Jesus was talking about here was a bit different. You see, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the Romans had occupied Palestine. And the Romans did not have a reputation for treating the people in the countries that they occupied with respect or dignity. So how would you feel if there were Russians or Chinese or Taliban forces who had occupied America and that was something that you were experiencing? And even in their context, the the Jewish context, the Samaritans and Jews had had generations-long hatred for each other. Maybe the closest thing that we can come up with in our context would be race relations in America, but there are differences there too. So you see, the point is that the enemies that Jesus called the Jews to love were people who literally wanted to harm them. I think that's part of why he goes on to reference in verse uh, 44, to pray for those who persecute you. That was actually happening in many cases. 
You see, my childhood rivals or adult adversaries in my life ultimately pale in comparison to the kind of enemies that the Jews had in mind, which then to me makes this all the more a radical command. My, my school days opponents were hardly trying to kill me. The mistreatment I may have experienced even as an adult has never been life-threatening. And yet for the Jews, those things were, for many of them, a reality. And Jesus calls for love. Now, as we look at this, the idea of love as a contrast to hatred may seem pretty logical and sensible. But why, you might wonder, does Jesus specifically call for prayer to Here's here's why I think Jesus would say this. Prayer is the single most profound and effective act of love that you could ever show someone. Don't you think? I mean, do you ever think about prayer this way? We kind of think of it as just this normal, easy thing. And yeah, in certain ways, you could make a greater sacrifice. But in terms of profound, I mean, think about what is happening when you pray for someone. You are petitioning the almighty creator of the universe, the divine and holy judge, the loving and gracious and sovereign king of all to act in his goodness and wisdom and power for the benefit of the person for whom you're praying. What could be more profoundly loving than that? Now, this is in no way to be taken as an excuse to not go and do other physical actions and show affection to people. But do you see what I mean? To bring before the throne of God in intercession, in a way, this person that you would be tempted to hate is, in fact, just about the most loving thing you could do. You see, true love for someone will result in heartfelt desire for and actions toward their good. And their greatest good will ultimately have to come from God himself. Now, if you want to really understand deeper the love that Jesus is calling for, you have to meditate on what he says in verse 45. Look at it again. He calls for this love so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying here that loving your enemies and praying for those who are either seeking to harm you or are harming you is part and parcel of what it means to be a child of the Father. The Father begets his children, and so his children display and share in some of his qualities. And the Father shows love not just to his children, those who uh, accept and embrace him, but also to those who oppose him. That's what Jesus means when he illustrates his point by saying in verse 40, at the end of verse 45, that the sun and the rain are not just for the righteous, but for rebels too. Let's break it down this way, and I think that these two statements are really at the heart of the whole passage. So if you only take one or two things, this would be one of them. The enemies of the Father receive His love. That's number one. 
The enemies of the Father receive his love. The unjust, in, the, in verse 45 here, are people who are not in the faith community, who are rebels against God, who worship other gods even, and who are unrepentant sinners. And yet, God shows them what theologians call common grace. Common grace could be defined as God's work to benefit the lives of everyone, everyone, regardless of whether or not they've been saved and restored in their relationship to God. And so no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your standing is before God, God is in some way gracious to you. The sun rises and sets, the rain comes and goes, the fields yield their fruits, the world turns, and people live their lives with God's kindness resting on them in some way. Even those living in abject poverty can recognize some form of God's grace to them. Now, as a quick aside, just because we're here in this verse, even though it's not what the whole passage is about, I'd just like to say, common grace is also important to understand when seeking to understand God's use of unbelieving, godless people as government leaders or people in health departments or educators for the good of the world. Common grace then means that we don't have to assume the worst of everyone who is an unbeliever when it comes to things like schools and medicine and governments and other important matters in society. But that's just an aside. So, when Jesus instructs his disciples and the gathering crowd about the need to show love to their enemies, he illustrates it by pointing out the fact that even God, who reigns above and certainly does not need to show kindness to those who have never turned to him in repentance and faith, shows love to his enemies. But we also know that it's not just the center of our solar system's warmth and light that God gives to his enemies. He has given another kind of sun, too. He gives common grace, and he gives his saving grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't talk about that specifically in this passage, but we have to read it with the context of the whole message of Matthew's book, and indeed, the whole New Testament. God the Father sent Jesus to fulfill the righteous requirement, to die as a sacrifice for sin, and to rise from the dead in power over sin and death. But the Father didn't send Jesus for people who deserved it. He didn't show love to those who earned his favor. He didn't give saving grace to the lovely or the lovable. As Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. And so, since the Father is love and has shown love to his enemies, number two, the offspring of the Father reflect his love. That is what Jesus means when he says in verse 45 at the beginning, so that you may be sons of your father. Love for your enemies marks you as a child of God. Now, the grammar 
here opens up some questions potentially about what exactly Jesus is saying. The phrase that you may have in front of you if you're using an ESV like I am that says, that you may be sons, could literally be translated, that you may become sons. And so the question then arises, is Jesus saying that loving your enemies turns you into a child of God? Well, no. The rest of Scripture would contradict anything sounding like a belief that entry into God's family is by works. But what I believe Jesus is saying, even if you take that word as become, is that we become more and more like the sons of God that we already are. As we follow his will and trust his word. And so, love for enemies marks the people of the kingdom as being children of the Father. Jesus then goes on to illustrate his point further. He says also that to love only those who are easily lovable is to act no differently than people outside the kingdom. See this in verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You know, for Jesus to call out here in his example, tax collectors and Gentiles was significant. Jesus is the master teacher, and he utilizes terminology and reference points that to the Jewish community were especially meaningful. You see, Gentiles were outsiders to the Jewish community, and some, perhaps many, were even racially discriminate toward them. But more than that, Gentiles weren't characterized as being followers of God. Certainly some would have been, but as a whole, they were not the people of God. And because of this, they were regarded as being morally reprehensible outside the covenant community, unclean and sinful. And so what Jesus is saying here is essentially, I'm not talking about loving those who are your brothers who you already feel a sense of obligation to love because they're your fellow countrymen. Jesus is saying love for fellow countrymen isn't that extraordinary of a thing. Gentiles do that too. Unbelievers do that too. People outside the faith covenant community do that too. But he doesn't just reference Gentiles, he references tax collectors too. And boy, this was just as poignant. Perhaps you know some things about this already, but perhaps you don't. The the tax collectors that Jesus is talking about were not just what we might think of as the IRS who are kind of a pain in the butt, especially this time of year. The tax collectors Jesus were talking about had, were Jews who had essentially become traitors to the Jewish community. They had sold out to the Romans who occupied Palestine, and they acted as enforcers for the Roman-imposed taxes on the Jewish people that the Romans had occupied. And so the Jews hated these guys. These guys were traitors. Jesus is doing is pointing to, therefore, the Jews' lowest reference point, tax collectors and Gentiles. They would have been at the bottom of the barrel of morality as far as a reference point in the Jews' minds. And Jesus says, even those whom you deem to be morally evil do the 
very baseline bottom level of love that you're already doing. They love people who love them too. That's easy. I mean, you can relate to this, right? It's not hard to love coworkers who are nice to you. It's easy. It's a lot easier to be loving to a sibling when your brother or sister is loving to you, whether you're a kid or an adult. It's not that interesting. It's not that remarkable when you show love to your dearest friends. But Jesus' kingdom people are a chosen, holy, peculiar people, as the Apostle Peter would put it. The love that Jesus requires in his kingdom and that he displays himself as its king and calls his chosen people to is extraordinary love because it results from an inward transformation that only he, the king, can bring. And so, you see, the Jews were not living out their identity. They did just fine being loving to their neighbor, or so they thought. But they'd found a loophole, or perhaps more like created a loophole, that allowed them to continue in their hateful, self-righteous, perhaps even racist sins towards the people who they deemed their enemies. And so, as you try to bring this home to your own heart, do you have enemies? Maybe, like me, as I mentioned a minute ago, for you, this concept is a little abstract. You're not a public figure who's got rivals and opponents or even death threats like some government officials might have, people who are trying to take you down. And so maybe you haven't thought in terms of having enemies before, but you do have enemies in a way, don't you? People who have mistreated you, people who are mistreating you, maybe family members, people in your neighborhood, a former friend who has betrayed you, and in your heart, you do not have love for them, and you do not pray for them. Or maybe you do pray for them, but you pray in the kind of way that we'll see the Pharisees praying next week. Thank you, God, for not making me like these people. Or maybe your enemies are a little more distant, not in your neighborhood, not in your family, not at your office. People within Christianity more broadly, people in the United States that you would deem with the same kind of disdain and resentment that the Jews had toward anyone that they deemed to be an outsider to their faith community. And so who might this be for you? The left? Progressive Christians? The alt-right on the other side? Fundamentalists? The woke what have your actions and attitudes been towards people like this? These words from Jesus are difficult for us to embrace, aren't they? And one of the marks of the kingdom people of Jesus is love for enemies. Being willing to be taken advantage of and disrespected and unjustly accused and even harmed for the good of those bad and sinful people. Remember, in the passage previous to this, Jesus describes the one who is evil, giving them your other cheek, giving them your coat, 
going the extra mile for them. Deliberately seeking the good of undeserving people out of a sincere and genuine affection for them that leads to actions on their behalf, interceding for them before the throne of God and blessing them with acts of kindness. So you may be sitting there thinking, but how? How do I do this? What does this look like? How can I love people like this? Well, here's how John Calvin would answer if you asked him. There is but one way to love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them which cancels and effaces their transgressions and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. Now, I realize that's still not quite as concrete a how-to answer as you might like. Here's where I would recommend starting, verse 44, the very end. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Our Our good friend and Holly's dad, who spoke to us a couple of years ago, says this in one of his books, it is impossible to truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. D.A. Carson says, all of us would be wiser if we would resolve never to put people down except on our prayer lists. You see, the exact way it looks for us in our unique lives and circumstances is a little bit more fit for a fellowship group discussion than for me to be labor here. But let me just say it this way. Start with prayer and go from there. And perhaps, my friend, my sister, my brother, as you pray for them, God will change your heart toward them. God will grow in you love for them. You will remember that they are made in the image of God just like you. And perhaps he will reveal to you specific ways for you to tangibly love them. So start with prayer and go from there. So as I've said multiple times throughout these passages, Jesus is not presenting some new or more difficult rule list to follow in order to become a child of God. He is describing things that are true of those who are his kingdom people And the way that you become one of Jesus' kingdom people is through faith in him, not works for him. But that is part of the whole point that I believe Jesus is making, and that is how he ends this section and this whole chapter. Verse 48, once more. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Number three, Jesus identifies the heart of his teaching. He identifies the heart of his teaching. Go back just a few verses, perhaps scrolling up or turning a page to verse 20 of the same chapter. Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what comes right after that startling statement? The six you have heard it said statements. And in each one, The issue is ultimately the heart. And then he concludes this section of the great sermon and summarizes that 
section with verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. My friends, we must not come away from chapter 5 and these six, you have heard it said, statements, thinking that Jesus is only or merely giving us an ethical and moral instruction. Now, these should be regarded as instructions and exhortations for how we should live, but please don't hear only that. Please. There are multiple things going on here, and practical instructions for life is one, but it's not the main thing. Here's the main thing. You cannot live like this apart from a miraculous transformation coming from outside yourself. Because remember, what did Jesus say before the six you have heard it said statements where we get these things that feel like practical instructions? He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And what does he say at the end? You got to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. So that's where we go, wait, what? And that's where Jesus goes, exactly, exactly. Because you see, that's the whole point of the very first recorded words of this great sermon of Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My friends, we must recognize our complete unrighteousness and understand our need for Jesus's righteousness. And it's only then when we acknowledge our spiritual poverty, yea, our spiritual bankruptcy, that we will then by faith receive from Jesus what we could never earn, but that he did. Righteousness. Real kingdom righteousness. And so, my friends, you see, the path to the kingdom of Jesus is a path that he has already walked. He is the man of sorrows. He was esteemed, stricken, and smitten by God, bearing in his body on the tree our sins, suffering under the wrath of God that we earned and deserve. You know, Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him even as his tormentors drove the iron spikes through his hands and feet, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right up until his dying breath, he perfectly lived out the kingdom righteousness that he requires. But my friends, this Christ died, but is not dead anymore. He is risen And as the resurrected Son of God, the righteous servant of God, the Messiah and Savior of all who turn to him, he has earned perfect righteousness and imputes that righteousness, or you could say transfers that righteousness to all who call on him in faith. That's the good news of the gospel. And you know, if you've never done that before, turned to Christ in this way, you can do that today. Simply embrace him in faith, repent of your sin, and you will be saved. The Jews did not understand the holiness and the glorious, perfect righteousness of God, and neither do we. The Jews made efforts to measure up to their version and understanding of the law, rules and rituals, but in the end, they didn't even do that right, and so do we. 
And what Jesus is doing in his sermon here is, in a very real sense, the same thing he did with the rich young ruler who claimed righteousness by keeping all the commands. Do you remember this? If you want to turn to Matthew 19, you can, and you'll see this exchange, or at least the end of it, Matthew 19, 21. After this exchange with the rich young man, Jesus said to him, verse 21, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. You see what he's doing there? He's, he's essentially heaping up the heaviest burden ever imaginable on this self-righteous young man who thinks he's earned eternal life. Jesus says, okay, give up everything in order to follow me. And the young man can't do it. He loves this world too much. He loves his stuff too much. And in the same way, throughout all of chapter 5, of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been saying, you haven't murdered anyone, but guess what? Anger disqualifies you from the kingdom too. You haven't physically committed adultery in a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, but lust disqualifies you too. You think you're loving like you should? You have to love your enemies just like you love your neighbor. Oh, my friends, I want this final verse of chapter 5 to create or cultivate in you a longing for the righteousness that Jesus describes. If you never have, you can turn to Jesus today, receive his righteousness by faith, and be gloriously ushered into a relationship with him for all eternity. You will be given credit for Jesus' righteousness and then transformed slowly but surely more into his image. Christian, if you're already a child of God, the same call goes to you. Long for this righteousness that Jesus has already given to you to grow in you more and more, to mark you as a child of God and to increasingly characterize you. Love for everyone, even your enemies truthfulness and trustworthiness in every situation. Purity in your heart just as much as in your actions. Grace and patience and meekness instead of anger. You know as well as I do, you cannot be, I cannot be perfect like the Father by our own will or in our own strength. But Jesus has been perfect for his children and so you can read Matthew 5, 48 with confidence, knowing that you have been united with Christ and are now a recipient of his gracious work in your life to make you more and more like the kingdom daughters and sons that you already are. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, Thank you so much for sending Jesus to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and to give us these words. We need your help as we seek to live as those that we have been called to be, to live out our identity as the people of God. We need your help, our Heavenly Father, our dear Savior, our precious Spirit, to work this stuff in us.
it is not natural in our flesh to be loving to our enemies. It is hard for us to be truthful and trustworthy in every situation. We are bombarded with temptation to sexual impurity in our minds just as much as in our actions. And it is far too easy for us to have anger in our hearts towards someone than to show them the grace and patience and meekness that you call us to. And so, Lord, we do not want to come away from this passage and this chapter as regarding these words simply as a, another rule list for us. We want to understand the heart of it, which is that we can't do this without transformation. But as those who have been transformed, for those who are growing, we do ask that you would help us to grow in our love and these other commands of Christ. As we seek to follow you, may we look to you. May we never look to our own strength. May we never seek to just stir up our own strength and ability to do these things, but may we rely on you in faith and in trust every day as we seek to follow and obey. Lord, as we leave this chapter and go on to the next section of your great sermon, we ask that you would solidify these truths in our hearts. Plant it deep. May roots be strong and may our lives be changed. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a few moments and meditate on these words before we begin to transition to our time of communion. Pray quietly in your own hearts for a few minutes.